as we've as, as we have opened up the book of First John and studied it, um, we found one of the primary themes of the book is John writes about uh, authentic Christianity or authentic faith, and and John writes again as we talked about John writes in the uh, midst of a lot of confusion. Because they're uh, likely, chapter number two tells us there's a church split of some kind, and uh, one group is holding to one theology, and another group is holding to another, and there's a debate over it, and um, there isn't really, uh, John writes really to bring some discernment to the situation, and to help, help the people to whom he writes to, to understand that uh, not everyone that claims to be a, a Christian is a true Christian. And, and the only way really to get to the bottom uh, of this truth is to open up God's word and to find out what God's word says about it. Uh, and truly, there is no way to know what authentic Christianity looks like, right, without looking into the book that talks about and describes what Christianity is. And so without the word of God being the guide to our uh, understanding of our own faith, we can't know whether or not we're truly Christians or whether or not uh, people that we're following or listening to or um, you know, watching on television or listening to on the radio, we can't know if they're really Christians. So it's so important that we familiarize ourselves with the word of God so that we can be discerning about our own faith and we can be discerning about um, the people that we follow, that we listen to. And, and in addition to that, we can have a passion, or an, another way of saying that is we can have compassion for those who are not. Because uh, there are a lot of people in the world today that they're just simply deceived. It's not that they're uh, anti-God or anti-Christ. It, it, it literally is that they have, they, they have never heard the truth. And, and perhaps they've even sat in a church on Sunday mornings week after week and year after year, and they've never heard the true gospel presented. And, and that's a shame, isn't it? But yet it happens all the time. And so they sit there and they're completely confused about what right, what's right and what's wrong. And they follow what they can. And, they, and yet at the same time, they're lost in their sins. And we, as, as believers, as followers of Jesus, need to be compassionate for those people. Have a heart for them, and, um, as Jesus Christ did in a, as, in a number of cases in his word. We learned the first few weeks, the first uh, test that God gives to authenticate faith was found in the verses five down to the end of chapter number one. And that was the, the test of how we respond when light is shined on us. In other words, when God saves a person, when God converts a person, they, they no longer have a need to hide. They no longer have a need to be afraid. When their sin is exposed, when their sin is brought to the, to the surface and um, perhaps somebody corrects them or, as the scripture says, you know, God forbid, rebukes them, right? How many of us like to be rebuked, right? So it's definitely, we can all conclude that it's definitely not a natural thing to like to be rebuked. However, it is a supernatural thing to respond to rebuke in the right way. So when the Lord shines his light on us, whether it be through a, an elder, um, whether it be through a parent, whether it be through a boss, one of the ways is that, that we know that Christ lives in us 
is when we receive that rebuke in such a way that it's supernatural. In other words, we grow from it. Proverbs is really clear on this teaching as well. The second evidence that John gives us to authentic Christianity, the authentication of our faith, is how we respond to rules. Okay? Um, God has given us rules and regulations in life. No one in here this morning doesn't have somebody who is over them. And we may think that we don't. We may think that we've risen above and we're so high and, and elevated that nobody is our boss or above us, but, but there's no one that sits in this audience or no one that sits in the world that doesn't have an authority over them. One of the things that God gives Christians is a heart of submission, a heart of obedience. Again, this is not natural, but it is supernatural. It is God's working in us and God's working through us. You see, the heart of a lost person is the heart of rebellion. It's the heart of resistance to rules and regulations. It's the heart of resistance towards God, right? So when God comes in and makes us into a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature, right? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When God performs that work, there are certain tangible changes that take place. And those tangible changes are what John uses to give evidence to us as to whether or not our faith is authentic and, and really to encourage us to resist those who teach a faith that is not authentic. So we have those two right away. This week we're going to talk about the third um, authentication of true faith, which is love. And John deals with it really throughout the entire book, but he starts dealing with it in, at the, in the middle of chapter number two. We dealt with this a little bit last week. The command in scripture to love is really the single command that governs all of Christian life. And in other words, all of God's commands can be rooted in, can be found in the command to love. To love God and to love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself. It's, it's the golden rule, right? This is what we're supposed to do. So all of God's commandments are rooted in this idea of love. Loving others, loving God. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. The scripture says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments rest or depend all of the law and the prophets. In other words, if you were to take all of God's word and all of God's commands and you were to lump them together, you would come up with two. Love God and love your neighbor. This is not easy to do. Matter of fact, it is a supernatural work of God that he must implant in your heart and he must cause you to carry out in your daily lives. This is why it is authenticating. This is why it reveals who we truly are. You see, our natural tendency is to not love. Our natural tendency is to bitterness, anger, frustration, revenge, hatred. These are our natural tendencies, but our God-given tendencies are to love. 
Not only is the love of God and the love for others the summation of all of God's commands, but the scripture also tells us it's the motivation for which and by which we obey God's commands. Now Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak with tongues of men and angels and have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, not only does God command us to love, but he tells us the basis for all of our obedience, even if it's to the point where we give up our lives to be burned. If I were to give up my life to be burned, but I wasn't giving it up on the basis or the foundation of the fact either my love for God or my love for others, it is, it is worthless. It is empty. Because it is not grounded on what God commands from us. So it is the foundation for the motive, the reason for our obedience. Remember this, all the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible can be traced back to loving God and loving people. In addition to that, all of the world's problems, marital, family, relational, financial, social, political, moral, spiritual, all of the world's problems can be solved by putting God and putting others first. This is the solution to our problems. However, it is not what many are committed to. Philippians 2 and verse number 1 through 4, the Bible says, So is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambitions or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." We can just stop and meditate on that phrase for a moment. It says, let nothing be done from selfish ambitions or conceit. But he says, but in humility, with a humble heart, let everything that we do be the counting of others better than, more significant, more important than we count ourselves. You say, Pastor John, that's impossible. Hence the reason why is it evidence of the spirit of Christ living within us. He goes on to say, let each one of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interest, interest of others. So God calls us to love. God tells us that the motivation for our actions, the motivation for our obedience ought to be love. And God tells us that the solution for all of this world's problems is that we love him and that we love others. We also know, as I mentioned already, that it's humanly impossible to do this. A sinful, selfish culture, a sinful, selfish people are incapable of loving God above themselves and loving others above themselves. 
A matter of fact, if you'll take some time and go back to Genesis chapter number two and three, you will find that Satan's, one of Satan's accomplishments in getting Eve to fall into sin was that he caused Eve to take her attention off of, off of God, and she then had her attention on herself. She began to think about what she needed. She began to think about what she wanted. She began to think about what would benefit her. And her attention moved from the worship of the almighty creator of the universe. And it moved into the realm of self. And by this, she immediately fell into sin. And not only did she fall into sin, but she drug all of humanity into sin with her. You think about it right away. She forsakes God, right? She turns her back on God. Adam follows suit with her. And then immediately, what do they do with each other? Immediately, they begin to conflict with each other, right? What do we know about the first two boys born to humanity? One killed the other. You would think it would take generations for it to set in, right? You think it'll take time for, for this lifestyle, this mindset to set in, but no, immediately after forsaking God, not loving God purely, not loving God solely, not loving God as the, as the only focus of life. The Bible says in Matthew chapter number five, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart means that those who are single in heart, those who are focused in heart, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. doesn't take long when we get our focus off of God. We get our focus off of God's glory. We get our focus off of God's greatness. We get our focus off of God's majesty and significance that we immediately, not only do we turn our back on God, but we begin to turn our back on each other. And we become like Cain and Abel, don't we? And we don't maybe kill each other, but I would submit to you that probably very few of us have lasted this week without committing murder in some way, shape, or form according to the biblical description of murder, which is not to kill somebody with your hands, but it's to kill somebody with your heart. Let's read our text together. Beginning in verse 7. Scripture says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. In other words, the commandment that uh, John is writing about, about loving others, loving God, is, is, it's, it's always been there. It's not something that's new. It's not a New Testament. Well, the, the Old Testament was the Ten Commandments. It was the law. The New Testament is loving God and loving others. No, the commandments have always been the same. They've always been the same, Old and New Testament. They've always been fresh. At the same time, it is a new commandment. It is a fresh commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This morning I want to look at three things for the remainder of our time. I want to look, number one, at why 
are Christians defined by their love? What's the reason why we are defined by our love? Number two is what is it about a Christian's love that defines them? And then lastly this morning, I want to talk about what are the results of being a loving person? What are the results of living out the love of Christ? The first thing that we need to understand is that this love is very unique. Um, there, are, there are three uh, and some say four Greek words in the New Testament that are translated into love. Um, one of them carries with it the idea of kind of an emotional uh, connection. The other one is more of a relational connection. But there's one that's always used to describe God. It's always used to describe God's love. Whenever you see this term, and the term is agape, you, you know that he's talking about something that is supernatural. When you see the idea of agape, it, it simply means this, that the, the love that a person has for someone else is based solely on his character to love. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so in other words, it has nothing to do with what this person has done, has nothing to do with who this person is, it has nothing to do with this person at all. It's simply a choice, a decision that the one who is loving has made. That's the idea of this term. It's a, a spiritual type of love. M- matter of fact, this, uh, the, the depiction of this is often in the word of God, of God loving people who were not lovable. God loving a people who were undeserving. God loving a people who didn't love him in return, right? The children of Israel is a a great picture of God loving a people who did not in any way reciprocate back that love. This is is a supernatural love. It is a spiritual love. It's a, it's a, it's a, a husband loving his wife when things are not going very well. It's a husband sacrificing his will and his way and his desires and needs to pour into his wife even when things aren't going the way that they ought to. It's, it's a God pouring into his people when they're a rebellious people, when they're a, a, an unloving people. This is the love that God calls us to and that is authenticating of our walk with him, of our Christianity. So why are Christians defined by this type of love? Let me give you three reasons really quick here. John 13, 35 says, by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me give you three things. Number one, we are defined by our love because it is the personality of our God. Love is the personality. This this type of love specifically is is the character of our God. We find it rooted in who he is. If we want to know what love looks like, we simply have to look to God the Father and we see his love being lavished out on on his people. And we can look at the word of God says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And then we see the manifestation of that love and what he was willing to do for the world that he loved. So we, we begin by looking up we begin by seeing the very essence, the very definition, the very uh, epitome of love, which is God, who is our creator and our sustainer. He is our God. 
if we are following after, if we are children of that God, then we should reflect and, and resemble what his character is like. 1 John 3 and verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father hath given to us or bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If you want to turn over a page with me to chapter 4 of the same book, 1 John. Chapter 4 and verse number 7, the Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if we are considered to be children of God, we will be like him. And if his character is rooted in love, then we will also follow suit with his character. You'll also notice, not only does the scripture say that we love because we are born of God, but we're, we love because we know God. We know his character. We know his heart. We know his desires for us. The Bible says anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, beloved, if God so loved us, we want to get an understanding of the love that God calls us to. We have to look to the author of that love. We must have a, a heavenly perspective. We must look to the divine. We cannot look to each other. We must look to find that in our God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. You can read down through the remainder of this chapter. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he hath seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Romans chapter number eight, the Bible says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation and heartache. And he, he goes through a whole list of things and he, he lists all of these reasons why we should not be in God's love. And then he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. So why are we defined by our love? Because it is the personality of our God. If you look at any other religion today, what you have to do is you look at the personality of their leader and you look at the personality of their book, and guess what you will find? You will find those two things ingrained in the followers, correct? So when we look at the personality of our God, and we look at the personality of his word, then we ought to find being lived out through his followers. It is the personality of our God. Number two, it is the power of our Savior. You see, it is, it is love that motivated Jesus Christ to die for 
your sins and my sins. It is the love of Christ by which we have the gospel. You see, the whole entire world was condemned. The whole world was under God's judgment and under God's wrath. And because God loved the world and because Jesus Christ loved his people, he came into this world and he willingly took upon himself our sins and he willingly died in our place. And he willingly gives us his character and his life and his salvation. This is the epitome of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that his love for us motivated him to be willing to die for us. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. John 15, verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Romans 5 and verse 8, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then Ephesians chapter number five, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? And gave himself for it. You see, the great display of God's love for us, if we want to know the character of love, if we want to see the epitome of love, all we have to do is look at Jesus Christ We see what he was willing to do for us. We see that he was willing to leave all of the divine treasures of heaven to come to this fallen humanity, this broken earth. And he was willing to do that because of what? Because of love. He lives here. He faces all the temptations that you and I would ever face, yet he never falls prey to those temptations. He's falsely accused. He's abused. His beard is ripped from his face. He is beat with a cat of nine tails. He wears a crown of thorns. He hangs on a tree and dies in our place all because he loves us. This Jesus is the epitome of love and he is the epitome of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this salvation that he purchased on the tree and rose again the third day for our benefit. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He does this because he loves us. He is the essence of love. Why are Christians defined by their love? Because their savior was the epitome of love. Number three, it is the purpose of the Holy Spirit God did what he did because he loved us. He sent his only son. Jesus Christ willingly gave up his life because he loved us. And then he granted to us his Holy Spirit. And now his Holy Spirit lives in us. And what his Holy Spirit does is he lives through us. Romans 5 and verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God gave us his spirit. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. God the Father did. God the Son paid for us with a perfect sacrifice. He rose again the third day, and he gave us his spirit. And his spirit now lives within us, and his spirit has given us life. And the purpose of his spirit is that we might now love others. Right? Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is, what's the first fruit of the spirit? The first fruit of the spirit is love. So the Spirit's purpose is to work out love through you. Can I, can I submit to you this morning that some people don't know the love of God because we haven't taken the opportunity to show it to them. And it doesn't mean that they are worthy of it because that's not the love of God, is it? If you show love to somebody who is worthy of it, that's not the love of God. If you show love to somebody who is unworthy of it, that's the love of God. And it's not just to show it to them one time. It's a consistent, eternal type of love. The Spirit of God works in us, and he works through us. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 23 and 24, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Why do we, why are we defined by love? Because our God is defined by love. Our savior is the epitome of love and the spirit that lives within us is the outworking of that love. Number two, what is it about Christian love that defines them? Very quickly, number one, it is who we love. What defines you as a Christian is who do you love? Do we love those who are undeserving? Jesus says in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God showed his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we love those who don't deserve our love? Is that the epitome of our love? Is our, is our love built upon a relationship with God? It is, it is, an, is it an expression of God in us? Or is our love an expression of responding to what somebody has done for us? Who do we love? Do we love the difficult? Do we love those who have hurt us? Do we love those who have done wrong to us? Do we love those who have pained us? And yes, it is impossible to love these people. But this is why it is God working through you to love them. Not only we love the undeserving, but number two, we love the unlovable. We love the unloving The Bible says in Matthew 5 and verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12 says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, do we love those who are not loving in return? 
Do we love those who wish harm on us? I've often thought about the book of Peter. You've been through some studies on the book of Peter, and I look at Peter's heart, and he, he went through a, a, a season. He lived in a culture, in a time, in an era where things were, were really bad for Christians. They would, Nero, under Nero's leadership, they would, they would hang the heads of Christians and some, the whole bodies on poles, and, and he lined his walkways with these, and, and he, he dipped them in oil, and he lit them on fire, and they, and they lit his walkways. This, this is a pretty serious time. But you know what you see Peter doing? You read the studies through the books of Peter. He talks about being strong. He talks about being submissive. He talks about being obedient. What Peter talks about is letting the Spirit of God live through you in the most difficult of circumstances. And it's very difficult to love somebody that is your enemy, is it not? Would you guys agree that it takes a supernatural power to love somebody that is your enemy? This is, listen folks, this is the expression of Christ in you. He doesn't, he, do, he doesn't make us, he doesn't make us love in circumstances. He makes us loving as a person. He actually changes us into a different person. We're not the same as we used to be. So we love the undeserving, we love the unloving, and we love the unworthy. I think this is a, this is a big one, even considering our culture and our, and our community that we live in. Jesus says this in, in Luke 14, verse 12. He says to the man who invited him, when you have a dinner or a banquet, do not, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return that you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I wonder sometimes if we love the unworthy. If we, if we take time out of our busy schedules and maybe take money out of our wallet or whatever might be the case, whatever opportunity might present it to itself to us, to, to love somebody who in no way, shape, and form can do anything back for us again. Can I submit to you that that's the gospel? That Jesus Christ did something for us that we could never repay. He did something for us that we could never pay back. We could never do anything for Christ that is worthy of the sacrifice that he made for us. Yet he did it anyway. We are defined by our love because of who we love. Number two, we are defined by our love because of how we love. I'm gonna give you a couple of references to read in your own time. 1 Corinthians 13, verse four through seven in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, it gives, us a, it gives us an unpacking of what love really looks like. And I just wrote a list of words out here, so let me run through them very quick. Real love is forgiving. It is kind. It is patient. It is genuine. It is forgetful. It is selfless. It is hopeful. It is gracious. It is encouraging. It is enduring. It is helpful, honorable, respectful, trusting, and prayerful. You take the text of scripture that I just gave you and read them, and you will see the unpacking, not of human love, but you'll see the unpacking of God's love. 
We are not just defined by loving our friends and neighbors. We're defined by loving our enemies and the worthless, the worthless, and I mean that in a respectful way, whom we see to be worthless. But God doesn't see anybody to be worthless, does he? And we also are defined by how we love, what our actions are. Lord says in 1 John 3, 16, 8 through 18, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is giving. Love is sacrifice for others. The last thought this morning is, what are the results of Christian love? We find this actually back in our, in our main text. Three things very quickly. The Bible says that um, at this time, it is, an, it, is not, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Three things. Number one is true love. Living a life of love results in faith. It, it, it is a confidence that we have because we see the working of the Spirit within us working through us, and it brings confidence to us as we walk in the light, or it causes us to walk in the light. 1 John 5, verse 13 through 15, and then 4, verse 17 and 18. You can read those on your own time. Walking in love brings confidence in the Christian life. There's really, honestly, if, if we learned as Christians how that everything that we do would be motivated by and grounded in love for people and love for God, we would walk in boldness in the Christian life. It gives us confidence Number two, it gives us firmness, stability. The Bible says that if, if we walk in love, if we walk in the light of love, that we'll never have a reason for stumbling or a, a cause for stumbling. If you think about it, he, in Ephesians chapter number four, he says, um, he talks about, uh, you know, don't lie and don't be angry and don't give, he says, don't give place to the devil, Right? In other words, don't, don't let there be a reason or a cause for you to fall prey to the patterns and the passions of the devil. When we walk in love and we're motivated by love and we're guided by love and everything that we do is built around love, we don't have any reason, we have no cause for stumbling. We have no cause for anger, no cause for bitterness, no cause for malice, hatred, wrath, revenge, or scandal. We have no cause for these things as long as we are walking in love. We're stable by walking in love. And then the last thing that he tells us is we're free. We have no reason to be in darkness. 
As we walk in love, as we love our enemies, as we love our neighbors, as we love those around us, we love our wives as we ought to, we love our children, we love our, our, our families. As we learn and, and grow in walking in this love, we, we, we have no reason to be in the dark anymore. We have no reason to hide. Because love keeps us out of the dark and introduces us into and keeps us in the light. When we walk in selfishness, as James 4, verse 1 through 3 talks about, this is when we decide to go into darkness because we're no longer walking in love. Walking in love causes us to be free, causes us to be confident or full of faith, and it causes us to be stable and firm. Remember this in closing. Every, every religion has a point of definition Some are defined by what they wear and look like. Some are defined by who they worship. Others are defined by the book that they read or follow. Some are defined by by who they pray to. Some are defined by how they treat other people and how they treat their own people. Others are defined by their creeds, statement of faith, and bylaws. But we learn in God's word that we are defined by our love. We are defined, we are authenticated, we are shown as being real by how we love God and how we love others. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15, the love of Christ constrains us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him and for for their sake died and was raised. And then Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to close with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced the love of God. Maybe you think about the idea of a father and you think about the idea of a dad and, you, and, and maybe your dad wasn't exactly the most loving individual that, that ever existed. And you think of that dad earthly and you try to compare him to the heavenly father and, and there's just not a connection there. What I'm here to tell you is, is that there is no earthly, there is no pure, earthly, authentic um, expression of God's love. We try, don't we? As a church, we try. We work hard that when you walk in these doors, we want you to experience the love of God. But we fall short too. What I can assure you of is this, that God's love for you was expressed in what he was willing to do for you. It is a significant love. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number 11, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. See, my call to you this morning is to come to Jesus. John 6, he says that all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast any of them out. Come to Jesus. 
Realize your need for salvation. Realize your need for a savior. Realize your need for a substitute for your sins. And know that your sins are not so great that Jesus Christ's blood was not sufficient to pay for them. Know that. You say, Pastor John, you don't know my life. I know God's love. And I know my life. And I know that if Jesus Christ's blood was sufficient to pay for my sins, his blood is sufficient to pay for all sins. Jesus says if you will come to him, he will embrace you with open arms. He will save you. He will take those dirty, rotten sins that have held you down, and he will, he will take them away from you. And he will plant your feet upon a rock, and he will make you into a new creation. What does Jesus want from you today? He wants you to come to him. There's a story in the Old Testament of a group of people who were bitten by snakes and they all had this disease and they were all dying. God told Moses, he says, Moses put this serpent on a, on a pole and lift it up and he says, as many as will look to that serpent will be healed. And he says in John chapter number three, in the same way that the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the son of man, Jesus Christ, be lifted up. And I pray this morning as we see the love of God, as we see the compassion and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we see the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we, that you, will come to him and experience that. My challenge to you, if you're sitting here this morning and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, my call to you this morning is this. Love like Jesus loved. Love who Jesus loved. And, and, and allow his love to flow through your body as an expression of your being created in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your love for us. We are so undeserving of it. The, the idea of loving our enemies and loving the unworthy and loving the undeserving is, is really, Lord, a description of who we are. And yet you poured your love out on us I pray that you would give us opportunities this week, even today, to love others in the same way. We pray your blessing upon your word, and we ask that you would bring forth fruit from it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.